everyone, Madeline Dell here, the Chapter Goddess. I am a mom, author, blogger, freelancer, podcaster, producer, and overall creative. With this show, I really want to focus on creatives and bring their authentic self to life. How are they motivated to pursue their passions? What have been the struggles along the way? Does self-care play an important role in who they are today and how they connect with the creative flow? Bringing one's authentic self to the forefront is important in this world that we live in currently. Sharing your self-care, your tips, and how you stay on track for things without losing it completely is also important. Self-care is not talked about enough. And authenticity and self-care are what I like to highlight with my creatives, as well as getting to know them. So get ready for a fun and entertaining show. Hit the like button, subscribe if you haven't already, and let's get ready to meet this episode's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Chapter Goddess. I have a fantastic guest for you guys to meet today, and this is going to be a fun chat. So let me bring them in and let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is J.R. Conkle, um, and I write the Rebirth of the Fallen series. Awesome. So I have another question for you about your creative side. So we did the written interview. So you're also a professional pianist. Is that correct? I wouldn't say professional. Yeah. I'm clearly an amateur who's, I've played for about 40, 43 years now. So at this point, you know, sunken cost fallacy, you just can't give up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I played the piano some when I was younger, so it kind of makes me excited that that's something that you still get to do. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, it's it, it's neat. Um, there's a lot of adult pianists in this area, so we actually have like our own version of AA, our support group. Yeah. The, the local Steinway Center lets us all get together once a month and try out our repertoire. And it's like, yeah, the first time you show up, you don't have to play, but you have to introduce yourself and it's about the same thing. It really is. That is so awesome. So let's talk about your book and then we'll come back to the piano thing because I'm curious about a couple of things. Sure. But tell me more about your book. Well, it's a series. Uh, there's four of them now. The fifth one will be out in August. Ooh, congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. And it's, it's interesting because it's kind of a post-apocalyptic fantasy. You know, the readers start they kind of get dropped into a world that has fallen. It fell three centuries ago. So it's got a nice grim, dark feel to it, but your protagonists are young adults. So you do have kind of like a little bit of a Harry Potter wandering through not a George R.R. Martin world, not that dark, but, you know, lethal Mm -hmm. and dark, but more of a high fantasy, epic fantasy sort of feel with a lot of cinematic action. like Ari Salvatore stuff. If you're familiar, your readers are familiar. I really like that style of fast action. Yeah, that'll keep them interested for sure. So where did this idea for the story come from? Well, role-playing games. Um, So I grew up 
in the 80s and late 80s playing Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and, you know, not understanding that it was a story. I think when you're a kid, you're, you're rolling dice and like playing with lawyers. Sorry, the cat is complaining in the background. Oh, you're um, going to actually thought it was my cat. So. No, he wants his catnip. Um, <laughs> but we didn't think of it as a story. And then the Dragonlance novels came out. And one of the famous things about that series was that a lot of the scenes were played out at a gaming table and it kind of, you know, turns the light on. You think, hey, wait, this is more than just rolling dice and, you know, keeping track of numbers on paper and stuff. This is a collaborative story. Yeah. So fast forward, I had built my own game system, done Gen Con and tried to release it and all of that. And, you know, we had a group of people we were playing and that's what every couple of years we play a campaign. And uh, at one point I gathered and said, we're going to play out an hour. This is 2004. Um, and for like six years, we played out this long series of games. There are probably 100 sessions or so. And that's how this series of novels was born. Oh, that is so awesome. So you got to basically interact, like it, like live the story through D&D. Yeah, and it was, yeah, different game system, but same same thing, yeah. And, it, you yeah. know, even as much as like a lot of the main characters, I mean, they were all players at a table. A lot of the things that they brought to those characters certainly made it into, you know, the story. And it could have gone, you know, a lot differently. I mean, we have two of the characters are brothers and the mother died, died during the childbirth of the younger one, you know, and they played up that entire dynamic and had this whole sibling rivalry going through, you know, the entire story. And it was great. It was great. And it's really made it into the books. There's a lot of elements that, watching other people act these roles has really mm -hmm. kind of given it a new life. That is amazing. Do you think the story pro like would not have turned out as well had you not had that kind of inspiration? It wouldn't be as detailed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, since I've played all those games and I saved the notes when I started writing and I went back and found the original notes for like the first eight sessions, which had like the first, you know, 50 scenes all scheduled out. So I was able to actually refer back to them and remember all these details that I had built at the time and we had worked out at the time that, you know, you know 15 years later, you're not going to remember them, or, mm -hmm. you know, 12 years, whatever it was. Um, but since I had all of that built and I had the story, a much larger arc, I know where it's going. So it, it does make it much easier to write because I can plot out, you know, the whole arc a couple books in advance because I'd already tested it. I'd already played it out and already, you know, and had let it kind of, play around in my mind for all that time. Yeah. So tell me more about your main characters. Well, there's a family of them, basically. They become family. I mean, they start out and they're just friends. Mm -hmm. But as they're dropped into this and they start to explore this world, they very much become a family. Um, and it does feel initially, you know, young adult, but it gets, they grow up very, very fast. Uh -huh. um, and you, you do play off, and it's a fantasy world so you do have them playing traditional roles but a little bit more than that um because what they start experiencing is they become possessed slowly over the course of the first couple of books Ooh. and they find out that they're not the only ones that a lot of important figures are possessed and they start to come to find out that they're being possessed by figures from 300 years ago when the Ooh. world fell Ooh. that were somehow called back Ooh. And so you start to get, you get to see slices of history, playback and flashbacks, and you can start to have some information being provided 
Mm-hmm. You know, so inside a point of view, there's that possessed point of view as well. And you do have to deal with possession as well. You know, sometimes there's a really easy relationship between a character and the Aloran spirit that's come to possess them. Sometimes it's not so easy. Sometimes there's, it's literally possession and they're trying to force them to do things that they may want wanted done in the past, want done now. So you do have a lot of that fight going on as these characters evolve, step into the roles, you know, start to take all the roles that their parents had before them and start to deal with these figures from the past and piece together what actually happened and what, what's supposed to happen now. Because the world is almost fallen, but it's not completely fallen. There's something holding on and nobody knows what it is. Yeah. So is one of them in particular your favorite that you created? Initially, yes. And I'd say by book three, somebody else took that role. Ooh. Um, which is fun. Very fun for me because I'm very much a plotter. But still, it's still great to be able to experience what it's like when a character takes over and says, okay, you didn't have me fully in your plot. So I've decided to, t- you know, to clean out this section of your world and make it mine. Yeah, so I've got I've got a demon who gets summoned in book one. She doesn't even have a name in book one. Mm-hmm. And she becomes very important in book two. But, you know, sacrificing, doing all the, you know, my demons are very, they're human in a sense. Mm-hmm. They're, they're good and bad. They're moral. They're very gray, but they do do demon things. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of sacrifice for families, other stuff that, you know, not so good. But, you know, fast forward a couple of books and now she's in a city, found a purpose. And actually being the figure who's keeping the darkness at bay because, you know, she's made that choice. Um, Yeah, it's 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 interesting when I can say my leading most heroic figures are a child molesting demon and a crossdresser Um, (laughs) in a relationship, of course. Yeah. So that's actually kind of a a fun way to have it, honestly. And it's different than what a lot of people would expect. So it'll kind of throw them for a loop and it also makes the story more memorable, if you ask me. Well, and it's, it's also, it's one of the themes. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't like hammering people to the head with themes, but, you know, you start out and it's, it's, it, it can appear very black and white, you know, humanity is almost fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the demons are wiping them out. Okay. We've got a good and bad, right? Good and evil is set up there. But, you know, as you go along, you start to see examples that, well, the humans aren't all good. Um, a lot of times they're pretty bad. And the demons aren't all bad. You know, they have their own motivation. Some of them are very honorable. Others aren't. You know, and some of them start to get a, a spark of, you know, what you would call humanity. Did you have one that was your least favorite? I've got some that are more difficult to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had one that I, I almost made like the Disney evil queen. In fact, one of my beta readers first thing said, this character is too flat. It's, it's like a Disney evil queen. And I'm like, well, I need to have something as a compass, right? On one end, you got to have a compass of this is your darkest. So everything else can be more gray than that. Yeah. So for the first couple of books, every time I wrote a chapter from that point of view, I wanted to make it as despicable as possible. Um, so I really grew to dislike her. Um, but, you know, over time, we're starting to see some flaws there. The character's starting to grow. Ooh, that's good. You got to always have that one character. It kind of like helps pro- progress the story for sure. Yeah. Um, 
So with the world building that you've got and the inspiration that you've got, what was your favorite thing when putting the world together in the book format? Hmm. I think seeing, seeing the progression and being able to look at it. I think the first book is more of, you know, the first half of it you're writing and you can, can I do this? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think as every, as people, and I'm sure a lot of your viewers are, are writers at one level or another, as you step through that journey, the first half, you just, can I do this? And you're constantly doubting yourself. Mm -hmm. And then after a while you say, okay, I can do this. It might not be great, but I can do this. So the first book, I think I was consumed with all of those pretty natural imposter syndrome sort of things. So I didn't get to enjoy it as much. Yeah. You know, until maybe just the end when I really got to flex my wings and, you know, some larger cinematic combats and figure out how all the point of views can be used as cameras and dramatic irony, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, they can't see what other people know. And you could show somebody a chapter before um, so you can create those sort of things. But I think maybe by the beginning of book three, when my characters really had their footing in the world. And I felt like they belonged there. I felt that they were growing and they were all growing into the, their roles. And I was getting to see the world breathe and grow around them. That's when, that was kind of the, the big moment for me. Hmm. Speaking of the action scenes, where, tell us a little bit about the backstory behind how you create those action scenes. Oh. Yes. I'm <laughs> a big one. Uh, so I think anybody who's played or specifically ran Dungeons and Dragons or any other kind of fantasy role-playing game, we can all watch it now. I mean, we can all watch Critical Role and we see it. It's becoming a lot more popular and mainstream now. I think if you do that long enough, you develop a superpower. Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, you're trying to describe what's going on to a group of people and keeping track of where they are at any point in time. And if you play with lawyers, they will argue everything with you at every point in time. Um, so over once you exercise that skill long enough, you start to be able to build those pictures in your head, being able to know exactly where something is in relation to something else, knowing how fast something's going to move. And you can start to really build a scene. You can, you can picture it. You know, very well. And you've spent so much time describing things using language as opposed to like watch a movie, you know, using a language to describe the scene so everybody else knows. Well, that's writing. You know, that that's that really is writing. And so once I started figuring that part out that, OK, I do it. I, I have done this. It's just I used to talk it. Now I have to put it on the page. Once once I started doing that, then it became really a fun project. Of, OK, I've got this large battle. How do I show this? How do I give this to, to my readers? How can I explain the concepts where they're not mired in world building and having to know this does that and this does that? How do you make it fun? You know, how do you make it like a Marvel movie battle, for instance? You know, those things are fun. Yeah. They're not always good, but sometimes they're, they're, they can be a lot of fun if you approach it that way, as opposed to, oh, I got a battle scene. I got to get myself through it. Yeah, no, that's a terrible way to approach that for sure. But I think we all have blind spots. Mm -hmm. You know, I think every writer has a blind spot, you know, and can you write a, a romantic scene? Uh, how do you do writing a dinner party? How do you do writing a battle? How do you do, you know, we all have those blind spots. And yeah, that's just one that 
I really didn't think it was a blind spot. And when I started to play with it, I really wanted to go in that direction and really loved doing it. Amazing. So when you see it, do you see it kind of like a Marvel movie in your head? Yep. Laying out? Yes. Yep. When it's I, large enough, yeah. I've only met a few people that have actually been able to like see it like that. Cause I'm one of those that see it too. When I write my fight scenes and everything in my stories and it's just, it's more fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and it lets you get to those. Assuming the battle, battle is large enough and your world allows it, it lets you get to those really, really epic, you know, scenes. And we've had a lot of them. I mean, you know, it's not even Marvel. Take a look at, you know, the battle in two towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how well that was done and how important, you know, just even having Gandalf crest the hill with the light behind him, you know, how that made you feel. Yeah. And knowing that, hey, I can do this as a writer, too. I can have these moments where my readers are going to start feeling dread and I can just have somebody create light and take away some of that dread and, re- you know, replay all those feelings. I mean, I think every writer is a reader and consumes this media. So, I mean, we have a lot of examples out there. It's just, how do we translate what we've seen and experienced into the page? And everybody's gonna do that differently. Yes. Now for another fun question, how does your music, your creation and creativity with music affect your writing? In a lot of ways. So structurally, let me, Give you an example, because you said you played piano. So when you start any complicated art form, you know, you learn the basics, right? You learn yeah. how to do things. You, you approach a piece and you're looking at the notes and you want to play all the notes. Maybe you put that down for a while. You come back to it six months later if you played other things and you've gotten better. Now suddenly the notes aren't that important anymore. You already know how to do that. Yeah. And then you start looking at the dynamic markings. And then you start figuring out, hey, I can hit the note with my pinky many different ways. And I can make that, if I work hard enough, I can make that note sound out more pronounced than everything else. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're working with phrasing, and, you know, and you're working with polyrhythms instead of having to count them up, cup of tea for me, cup of tea for me, when you're doing three over two, you can just feel it. And you yeah. don't have to consciously think about it. And every time one of those things becomes automatic for you, your brain gets to focus on the next to make it better and better and better. And I think as a writer, we do that, yeah. you know, as we start, you know, I still remember when, cause I wrote multiple point of views and I made the decision to be one point of view for ch- per chapter to avoid people flopping in and out of people's heads. Cause I hate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still remember I would do all of these statements like, well, Liam saw Connor walk towards him, you know, and I realized I don't need the Liam saw part. That's 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 a piece of scaffolding that I'm putting in the page for myself to keep reminding myself whose point of view it is. Yeah. And once you get you internalize that, you, that you just strip that away. You don't even think about it anymore. You take it out of your writing, and then you get to the next thing. You know, maybe you're working with dialogue, and you're like, "Wow, this is bad." I have he said, she said after every line. How do I do this? And then you know, after you practice that a bit, and you realize, okay. I can add actions in the middle of my dialogue. There's all these different ways I can approach it. Once those tools become second nature, you don't think about them anymore. So then Hmm. you can move on to the next thing and the next thing. And, and, you know, as you go along, you've, you've taken things out of your thought process so you can focus on new things. And you do that. I think you do that a lot with music. Um, 
The other interesting thing with music, I think I heard this on a radio lab somewhere. So there's actually equations mm-hmm. for minor climaxes in songs, minor moments. And you find that you can never get somebody to get that spine, you know, shiver, that tingle. At the, at the true climax of the piece, unless you hit the, the smaller ones along the way. It's like it primes the pump for the brain so that when it, yeah. when it gets to that moment, yeah. you can really have catharsis. Um, you do the same thing. You can do the same thing in a large battle scene. You can do the same mm-hmm. thing in, a, in, a, in an argument. Because, you know, an argument's just a battle. It's just there's no physical action. Yeah. Um, you, know, you can do that all the time in your writing. And I don't think I would have thought about that or known about that, you know, if it wasn't for music and studying that. You know, mm-hmm. and, and really doing a deep dive in some of the studies and some of the pieces I, I, I play where they, they analyze those moments. And again, going back to the Marvel movies, you ever watch, walked out of a movie, you're like, I feel violated because they, I cried and I don't believe they earned it. Yes. You know what yes. I mean? Like, <laughs> I feel choked up. Well, they're using the same formula. They figured it out. Yeah. They're like, well, if we do this so many times and give them these moments, there's going to be catharsis, whether or not we've earned it. <laughs> That is true. So, because especially with uh, some of the, um, oh, which one was it? I think it was Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Sure. Maybe yeah, um, was yeah that one. Yeah, for sure, it was one of those. So the ending anyway. But we won't we won't dive into that too yep. much. <laughs> so, what is your? You've got how many books in this series so far? You said the fifth. Four one? currently. Fifth okay. is out. August. Is the fifth one going to be the wrap up for this one, or no, do you have no. more planned? Yeah, the fifth one does, is definitely not a wrap up. Um, the, the, I'm planned out to twelve. Um, I, you know, and we'll see when I get there. There may be more, but I can easily plan out to twelve. Um, I'm maybe twenty thousand words into book six right now. Which, you know, and they are organized into trilogies. So you do get somewhere, you know, book one, two, and three oh. do go somewhere. But I, I do write very much serial. So there's not much time between any book and even from the end of one trilogy to the start to the next. But they're still, they're, they're organized that way. And they make sense, you know. Um, yeah. If somebody reads them, they'll, they'll understand what I'm saying. Now, the first three are kind of dealing with a couple environments. And then in four, you're somewhere else and you're moving through that and working with those problems. Sweet. I like series that are set up like that, that you just, you can just, just keep going like a binge reading session, just go through them all. <laughs> so that's, those are the best. The time gaps between some, a lot of authors do that. It just drives me bonkers. Does that kind of like make you go stir crazy when you come across those? Unless there's a reason for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if, so I do time gaps between chapters. If I, you know, okay. It, it, so when you look at a story or let's say you look at a journey, you know, I think you can, there's a lot of fantasy series where people have pointed out. They just walk a lot. Yeah. Um, some famous ones, you know, good books too. Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong, but I like to move. If, if the details aren't important, if it's not important that they walk for two hours. I'll end a chapter and start it two hours later. Yeah. And reflect back briefly on the walk. If there's anything memorable and we go forward. So if I end a book, I might move things forward a couple of weeks if I need some actions to happen or the characters to evolve in a certain way. If an author has a reason to skip a lot of time, okay, fine. Yeah. But yeah, if it's just kind of like arbitrary, you know, 
Because yeah, like a random 17-year gap is what I'm thinking of. <laughs> so Yeah, if it's episodic, that's one thing, but yeah. Yeah. Right, there, there are examples where I'm really not happy with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that actually, I'm not going to name that series or say who that was, but that's completely put me off of that series when it was like the first three books and boom okay now we're 17 years later and i'm like what what no yeah no, they're no, two no. different stories <laughs> they, they become two completely different series yeah like so, in the same world yeah insane insane so tell me a little bit about your creative process how does your schedule work do you have a set writing routine um, I try to, um, and I, I, for a while I had a pretty set routine, um, but you know, life comes at you and changes things. Um, you know, and that's good. Flexibility is good too. But so I, I like to outline out my chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to outline, you know, 20, 30 chapters in advance. Now I'm down to doing 10, um, which I think has made me a better writer, mm-hmm. um, because it allows me to revise my it's a lot but when I had so many chapters mapped out I was reticent to revise things because I have to be doing all this extra work so now I'm leaving myself more room I want to always have enough chapters mapped out where I never have that paralysis and I think most writers get that at one point like you know I finished this chapter where do I go now and then you procrastinate you stop writing so I do like to map it out enough where I never have that paralysis so I can finish one chapter and start the next. Um, but I don't want to go so far where I feel, you know, I'm constraining myself. And then as far as kind of an editing rhythm, what I like to do is I'll finish a chapter. I'll edit it. I'll print it out. I'll edit the printout. Then maybe every hundred pages or so, I will print everything out and do an edit. I find if I let it sit, for long enough, maybe six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is. Um, when I go back to it, I can edit it with a fresh set of eyes. But I think you can only do, you know, you, yeah. if you don't give yourself time. Yes. You have you to pull can. yourself completely right. away and then give it a like new look. Yeah. And I find I, uh, I make so many corrections. And, you know, again, it's the same thing of, you know, I've talked about music that way. But, uh, you know, I think people often experience solving a problem in their dreams. You know, they wake up one morning and they figured out the answer to something. I think it's that way with difficult paragraphs. Okay. As an author and a creative, I like myself, I like to ask other creatives what they do for their self-care, how they keep their like mental focus and everything. Do you have a certain routine or something that's a go-to for your mental health? Yeah, mine's easy because um, I've got the piano. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what I've always had. Um, you know, I think if they were to diagnose me, I'd be somewhere pretty far on a spectrum. And I mean, so that's what I always had is, is kind of my method of expression, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've kept it with me. I mean, as I, you know, moved, I always had a piano and now I finally have Steinway after, you know, years of breaking uh, other pianos. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that grounds me any morning that I get to practice is a good morning, you know, and sometimes even if I've got to be to work at, at six, I'll get up at four so I can have you know, at least some time to practice before mm-hmm. I, I get on with my day. Nice. So that helps you like focus for the day then for sure. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Cause I have to agree. Music has a magical effect on like 
everything I feel like. So yeah. Yeah. I can't function without it. Um, you know, in, it's a common thing if you go on writers' forums. There's often a question of, do you have a playlist? You listen. So I think, I think writers are really, I, you know, not just writers. That's not fair. All creatives are are certainly attracted to music. I would hope. It's just you know, it's going to play a different role and be used in different ways depending on the person. Yeah, I agree. Well, go ahead and tell our listeners and viewer where they can find you and your work. Okay. Um, hear what the books look like. There's one. See if I can do this smoothly. There's two. No, that's four. I'm doing this out of order. Here's three. And here's four. Nice. That demon who took over and became the most popular character finally made a cover. Yay. <laughs> yep, she's she finally she finally landed a real contract. Uh, so you can find them on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um my author page is up there. There's also a, a digital version of the trilogy, the first three books. Mm-hmm. So, and, and really cheap. I mean, yeah, and I think I'm also Kindle Unlimited. So you can also just read it there if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also reach me on my website. It's jrconkle.com. It's okay. spelled the same way as my author's name, coincidentally. Um, also on Facebook under J.R. Conkle. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the book chat with me today. Oh, thanks for the chat. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe to get future notifications when shows come out. Also, be sure to check out my website. I have a blog featuring this creative with some other fun and interesting questions. You can also subscribe to my newsletter there to stay up to date with all things The Chapter Goddess and Madeline Dale. Once again, thanks for watching and have a great rest of the day.